Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. James Zarsadias on the show. Dr. Zarsadias is an associate professor of history and the director of the Yunchenko Philippine Study Program at University of San Francisco. He specializes in United States history, particularly urban and suburban history, and Asian Americans history. Professor Zarsadias was a fellow at both the Smithsonian's Institution's National Museum of American History and Asian Pacific American Center. The focus of our conversation is his new book, Resisting Change in Suburbia, Asian Immigrants, and Frontier Nostalgia in LA, which is the 2023 recipient of the Organization of American Historians Lawrence W. Levine Award. Please enjoy this fascinating conversation. Dr. Zarsadias, this book seems to be sitting in kind of an intersection of a few different disciplines. What do you hope to contribute to the conversations in the various fields? You mentioned at the beginning kind of the intersection of U.S. history, Asian American studies, ethnic studies, urban studies, Western history. So it feels like you're speaking to a large subset, but then, you know, at you as a cultural historian are kind of in between a lot of these disciplines. So what do you hope to add to the conversation with this book? Yeah, you know, my my primary intervention, I feel, is just to tell a story about American culture through the lens of Asian Americans. And again, as I mentioned in the book, a lot of Asian American life has taken place in the suburbs. This is not a recent phenomenon. You know, part of as I was writing this book, that's something I would hear in in media, you know, in the 20 late 2010s when a lot of media started to pick this up. Like, oh, you know, the suburbs have diversified. And I was thinking to myself, the suburbs have been diverse, you know, definitely within the last 20 to 30 years. But even arguably, you can go back to earlier examples of pockets of Black suburbanization, suburban communities and Latinx communities. And and in this case, Asian Americans, where a lot of the kind of centers of Asian American life have been developing, especially along the coast especially California since the 1980s. And so for me, my my intervention was coming from, from both personal and professional interests to tell this story, to tell a story about why we need to think through and think about how important the suburbs are to Asian American life, but also how Asian Americans have impacted, or as folks will read in the book, or if you've already read the book, how in some ways they didn't want to change or or reshape the suburban landscape and suburban life. And so that that to me is my primary intervention and why it can speak in some ways across fields. So of course, history, ethnic studies, you know, sociology, political science, and, and geography also, you know, just in are inherently, you know, in the mix, so to speak. Yeah. And we just I just had Mitchell Schwartzer on the show whose book Hellatown about Oakland mm-hmm, kind of right. tracked urban development. How would you yes. contrast kind of the discourse around urban development with suburban development. They're they're kind of on parallel tracks in some ways, but they have some key differences. How would you distinguish? Uh, you mean just in terms of how, you know, how people talked about? Yeah, so de- like how how we how we observe patterns in suburban development that differs with patterns in urban development. Oh, sure, sure. Well, you know, w- with this particular case of the San Gabriel Valley, and and more specifically the East San Gabriel Valley, a lot of this the development um, was, you know, in contrast to other parts of California, um, you know, very much at on the, this very master plan scale, right? 
And I'm not saying it's exclusive to this region, but what you found was in Southern California, in the inland parts and in the southern parts like Orange County, at Orange County, and again, the more eastern parts like Riverside and San Bernardino, you know, the type of development was was very quick and and in some ways, again, vast, right? I feel like compared to, let's say, the inner ring suburbs of LA or the Bay Area, like San Francisco or San Jose, you know, you did have some master plan communities, but there were kind of the development was usually a little bit more steady. In the East San Gabriel Valley, it's it, it, at least, you know, at least residents would tell me when I did these oral histories, I, I did several dozen interviews, and they say it just felt like it happened overnight, right? There were cranes everywhere, there were, you know, bulldozers everywhere, you know, creating these new communities. And so the type of, of, urbanization, if you will, and development was, of course, in this case, a suburban form where it was obviously low dense, uh, lower density housing, strip malls, and planners, developers, and of course, residents themselves were very mindful and, and local politicians about making sure that they do, quote unquote, urbanize and develop, but not become cities, right? And I know that word ha is very malleable, and it can mean many things when we say city, or even suburb, but here in this ethos of anti-urbanism and just across America, people trying to flee the cities after World War II, people were very mindful of making sure that you didn't have buildings that were above, let's say, three stories tall or four stories tall, that you didn't have you know, a lot of density, right? That, that there was a lot of space and, and land separation between residential pockets and neighborhoods versus commercial districts and strips, right? And so what's interesting to me is that, you know, the the San Gabriel Valley, this part of the East San Gabriel Valley, you know, was very much in line with broader trends across the state. But I feel like, especially in Southern California, you had a very similar pattern of suburbanization happening. Um, and in a scale that, you know, was quite tremendous because California, Southern California was really a big magnet to for a lot of people. You had Midwesterners, Southerners moving by the thousands every day after World War II. And so I think to me, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a contrast to what you found in Northern California, you know, but of course, you know, there's a lot of overlap too in terms of trends and phenomena at the time. Yeah, it feels like there's equal numbers of conflicts that happen in suburban development as in urban development, but it feels like the amount of moneyed interest and stakeholders in yeah. the urban centers naturally makes, you know, gathers more media coverage. Things tend to be more conflictual in those kind of pockets where there's a, a ton more, or, you know, a ton more stakeholders and interest groups that are involved in one concentrated area that they perceive as highly valuable. Whereas in suburban development, you know, I live in a suburb with an HOA, you know, there's conflicts mm -hmm. that go on, but they're not covered in the media, you know, like whether you can park your trailer in front of your house is, is, is less likely to be covered than are, you know, are we going to tear down an old building in downtown that's considered blighted and that everyone's can see. And it feels like those get our interest in some ways, even though, you know, some of the suburban conflicts are equally, equally important to people. The, the interest is not as there because it's not that center of the community. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. And and, and I'm glad you said that because it in a way is related to a methodological, just to get to the nerdy stuff point, that when I was doing the research, you know, so for example, you mentioned an HOA, right? That you live in a community, there's an HOA. 
I knew that there were moments that residents and neighbors were not getting along. I knew that there were moments where city council members and planning commissioners had conflict or maybe had different views from their their neighbors. And so I, you know, you can't really get to the to the to the heart of those questions because again, a lot of the media like Los Angeles Times, Orange County Register, San Gabriel Valley Tribune, which is a local paper, they're not covering all that nitty gritty. And so I had to, as a historian, right, go into, you know, think about creative ways of getting those answers beyond city council records of, you know, who spoke at a council meeting in 1983. You know, I also had to go and find HOA newsletters. A lot of these HOAs had newsletters, right? Uh, again, this is, of course, obviously before the digital age of you know the internet age so there wasn't these there weren't these online databases i could say like what did they say in 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 1990 you know can i google that no i right i had to go and and talk to people and go in the community and ask them do you have old HOA newsletters, do you have, you know, flyers that you save? And thank God I had a lot, this is a historian's dream, right? Thank God a lot of people I met just had, you know, uh, boxes, right? Of, of old paperwork. And, and you know, it was not, it was not, I asked them like, why do you keep it? And they're like, I, I sometimes I, I forgot it was there, you know, or, 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 or they had nostalgic reasons, you know, like they bought their first home. And so they were keeping all these records. And so thank God I met the right people. But anyway, going back to this question, right? Exactly. These are these kind of everyday kind of quotidian little quote unquote, little things that happen in suburbia every day or give, you know, have big answers and you have to kind of get creative in terms of trying to get to the heart of these things that these questions that I had in mind, which is, for example, how did residents feel about this apartment complex, which is a symbol of urbanization? How did they feel about it in 1994? How did they feel about a plan to build a Target or a 99 Ranch, right? These stores and, and markets how did residents feel about that in 1997? And the LA Times is not going to, you know, for the most part, even a journalist said this himself, is not going to get into that type of detail, especially in a, in a pretty small community, like let's say Walnut that I talk about in the book. Absolutely. Well, and I want to jump into talking about ethnic studies for a little bit, because this is another cross section in your book. What, what's your perspective on the state of ethnic studies, specifically the domain of Asian Pacific Islanders? I mean, it feels like it's going through some major changes. And I work in the K-12 world. And so we're, you know, kind of going through that transition of now offering it as part of our core curriculum to our high school students. And so there's an expanded interest in this subject matter. And given that your book is about, you know, California history, I mean, it seems like it's right at that intersection. So what what is your perspective on the state of the discipline and where do you think it's headed? I think this is a really exciting time, you know, from what I hear from, uh, you know, I have a few friends that are, you know, K through 12 educators, and it's great to see that, you know, states like California and different municipalities across the country are are trying to integrate more Asian and Pacific Islander American studies, right? And selfishly, right, as someone that grew up in California and born and raised in California, I always felt that communities like mine, you know, I identify as Filipino Chinese American, you know, were not given, you know, a fair amount of time, right, in these textbooks that we we had to read in, in uh, elementary, but especially middle and high school, right? And I feel like, you know, this is, again, a really um, crucial moment, too, because I feel that if we're going to integrate Asian, more Asian American history and Asian American studies, you know, it has to be done right as well, right? Not just a sentence or a line here and there. And I think, thank goodness that we have a lot of educators, nonprofit organizations, and, and, lobbyists on the side of, of teachers, right, to make sure that that that's that these stories are told correctly, accurately, 
and with care, right? And I think in a broader scale, you know, I sit currently on the board of the uh, Association for Asian American Studies, which is the national organization for Asian American studies. And we represent, of course, educators across you know, from, from K through 12 to higher education, but also nonprofit groups, activists, writers, and so forth, other allies. And we've noticed, obviously, in, in, in national politics, how Asian American studies is actually sometimes being weaponized in problematic ways. So, for example, in Florida, you have, you know, Governor DeSantis, you know, backing Asian American studies uh, and telling Asian American history, but also curbing or or rewriting in many ways African American history, right? And so it's, it's, so again, it has, it has to be, we have to kind of be mindful of how we integrate and, and, and be more inclusive. The stories have to be told in ways that are, again, are not just accurate, but also not being politicized. And I think thankfully so far in California, at least within the realm of Asian American studies, from what I've seen, it's an exciting time. And I think obviously well overdue. Yeah. And I think you're right to kind of disentangle different subsets within ethnic studies and talk about how they're treated differently. You know, there's, I've read articles about certain interpretations of model minority ethnic studies relative to other ones. And like, you know, it, it seems like it's a situation of the necessity of solidarity amongst the different, you know, kind of sub disciplines of ethnic studies. So I appreciate you saying that I'm going to ask about one more thing before we jump into the meat of the book, which is field work, because You know, I just finished reading this book by this reading linguist at UCLA about about online reading, and so now I'm now I'm <laughs> buying paper books by the pounds these days. I've 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 been doing that. I, I'm I'm a true historian. I have a hard time reading on digital. So <laughs> yes. Well, in any case, one of the things she talks about in the book is, and you can probably confirm this, is you know university faculty that they did a study in the use of source material by students in history papers and found that most of the quotations came from the first page or the last three. So meaning they read the introduction and then skimmed the discussion or conclusion and then used that as their evidence and then skipped what we know as people that study history and work in professional capacities, the most important part of the, you know, paper or the article is the middle section, which is the evidence, the methodology, because that's really determines whether those conclusions are valid. So fieldwork is an interesting one. In some ways, there's some amazing opportunities that modern historians have because you can actually speak with people who are there kind of in a quasi journalist capacity. So do you think modern historians are doing enough to form their evidence uh, using fieldwork? And what, when you're looking at back at your evidence and you're contrasting uh, and comparing uh, what you learned from oral histories versus local newspapers and HOA newsletters, for example, how do those differ in substance? I'm going to answer that question, a really good one, by the way, in a few ways, because in a way I had to be an oral historian. I, so I, I, I received some training when I was getting my PhD in, in the methods of oral history and the ethics of oral history, right? And then the kind of methodological questions behind you know, whether or not oral history is a valid use of data con- uh, collection and consumption, right? And so for me, I say I had to be an oral historian because the communities I was focusing on are communities that have been not only just politically and culturally marginalized in America, but also marginalized in the archive. And when I'm talking about the communities, I'm talking about Asian Americans and especially immigrants and refugees. And so for me, when I wanted to tell the story of, you know, this slice of, of, of American history about Asian American suburbanization, 
I couldn't get those stories again from just the Los Angeles Times or HOA newsletters, right? The HOA newsletters, for example, just since we're on this theme of HOA newsletters, they were helpful for getting information about how people felt about, you know, a, a, a new development in the neighborhood or, you know, this house that is, you know, on the block that, you know, has too many weeds that they need to be pulled out, you know, these types of things, like, that's fine. Like, I, I could get that stuff. But I couldn't get the the material and information about how a Chinese family felt about a local issue or how a Filipino immigrant, how they got there to begin. Like, why did you move to the suburb as opposed to moving to the city of Los Angeles? Right. And, and, and oral history was where I felt that I could get I could fill in those gaps of information. Or and also in many ways, sometimes verify information, right? If I read something that alluded, you know, to an opinion in a in a local, you know, you know, uh, let's say I read a, a comment in a city council minute, uh, city council minutes, and I say, okay, well, if if this one resonant with the last name that sounds Chinese, if they said this, and then I saw it again. I want to talk to people too to, to to see if they also would agree. And you know, I talked to a few more people, and then it, there was like confirmation, right? The check marks, right? And that's where oral history, the utility comes in, right? And so for me, it was I was coming from it from the vantage point of I have to be in some ways creative with my sources because unlike some historians, you know, you know, we're taught as historians to rely on the text, right? You go to an archive, you pull out files. And yeah, that's that's how most historians actually work, especially people who do work obviously well before, you know, let's say World War II is just like, you know, as a an example of a of a cutoff point. And you have to look at those documents. But for me, thankfully, because my research is more contemporary, as you mentioned, I could talk to people. And in a way, again, that was also an added benefit, you know, not only am I confirming information, filling gaps, but frankly, like, you know, I kind of consider myself, I still consider myself a very interdisciplinary scholar. And so I, I'm very much grounded in United States history. And that's my training is history is to be a historian. But I also feel like the type of questions that I have and the research that I do, even for my second book that I'm working on, which I could talk about later briefly is, is getting out in the field. Right. And and that's where my ethnography hat goes on. That's where my 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 sociologist hat comes on. That's where my my interest as a political scientist comes on, because I feel like, you know, talking to people also give adds another layer and dimension to storytelling that the written word cannot tell you alone. Right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the meat of your book. I want to start with a quotation from it. You say at the beginning, I argue that the myths of American suburbia, the American West, the American dream inform residents' expectations. Furthermore, I argue that residents' allegiances to ideals, rhetoric, and iconography of country living shape their identities, subjectivities, and perspectives, thus informed, informing how they engaged in civic affairs, end quote. When I first read this, I will admit that I was somewhat confused because as someone that lived in the San Gabriel Valley, when I read the term country living, yeah. it was not the first concept that came to mind. And obviously when you're saying this term, it is loaded with specific meaning and not just kind of the generic kind of colloquial understanding of those two terms combined. So can you unpack that for us so we can kind of understand your framework of how you're approaching this? Yeah, th and thanks for pulling out that 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 particular sentence because it does it is a foundation for the book, and I get why you were like, hmm, this is not quite connecting with me as someone that used to live there, as you said. Well, a few things, right? When I say country living, uh, and I use that term throughout the book, and also frontier nostalgia, I kind of use it interchangeably. 
because that became a theme as I was doing research on the east side of the San Gabriel Valley. So, you know, a lot of folks who, you know, if you don't know LA or know a little bit about LA, the, the San Gabriel Valley is, is one of the principal valleys of LA. There's, you know, a couple of million people live there. So it's not a small place. The west side of the San Gabriel Valley is home to Monterey Park, which a lot of people know as a Chinese immigrant enclave and has been. And those are very traditional, quote unquote, post-World War suburbs, right? The east side is developed later, and, and you can learn more about that in the book. It developed really largely in the 1960s and beyond, but especially in the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s. And why I use the word country living, you know, regularly throughout the book is because residents, developers, planners, local politicians often deployed this rhetoric of the east side of the San Gabriel Valley as a rural place, as a country landscape, as a bucolic, idyllic place. And, and for a lot of residents and, and community leaders, they felt that way because, you know, at the time, you know, if you place yourself in that moment, in the 1960s of that part of LA, these were in many ways remote landscapes. A lot of the major freeways and highways and roads and thoroughfares that are there now and have been for the last few decades were not there 50 years ago. Yeah. When was the 210 built? I, I don't remember. That, oh, that off the top of my head, I can't remember. I, I will say that for me in the book, the 60 freeway, for example, and the, yeah. and the 10 freeway, they didn't go out to some of these communities until mm. the late in the 1960s and 70s in some cases. And they kept going more and more east, right, into the Inland Empire. So, yeah. you know, with... As a side note, right, and I think a lot of you would would agree, as the freeways kept extending, then the, of course the homes kept growing, right, and keep being getting built. So it, in a way, you know, we can't also minimize the importance of highway access in terms of also building out and and developing new communities. Yeah, right? kind of the railroad model of it oh, follows yes. where the tracks go. A absolutely, and a lot of these communities, speaking of which, in the East San Gabriel Valley like Covina and San Dimas, these were, you know, agricultural towns throughout the early 20th century that had rail access and they were shipping citrus all over the over, all over the United States, right? So so in many ways, you know, this part of California has always had global and national ties. It's just that it didn't was not a very, very developed part of the state in let's say the 1950s, right? Yeah. So going back to to this point of country living, you know, when I was in the archive and I was talking to residents in oral histories, you know, a lot of residents and in and in newspaper articles and advertisements from these home builders like KB Homes, you know, William Lyon Homes and some other developers that are not even with us today anymore, they would really deploy this idea of that if you move to the East Sangamon Valley, you're living in the countryside, right? But you have the best, right? The best of town and country, they'd always say, right? You're, you know, 20 miles from downtown Los Angeles, but you are a world away, right? And they'd use a lot of that flowery language to say, you, you know, and we have to think about this too, in the context of the 1970s, especially the 80s, you know, America was in love with Western nostalgia. We had a Western president, Ronald Reagan, a Californian, right? And we had popular TV shows that really glorified the American West, right? Or, or you know, the kind of greater Sunbelt. So like TV shows like Dallas and Dynasty, Knott's Landing and, and, and other TV TV shows and, and Western fashion was in style, as I mentioned in the book, too. So this is all in the context of a particular moment in America where Western life was being glorified and romanticized, and people just could not wait to get their hands on a slice of, of living in Southern California. So that frontier imagery 
lured a lot of people into the East San Gabriel Valley. They they were they were drawn to you know with with these with this particular image of living in the country, a Western country landscape. But really, at the end of the day, these were suburban communities, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean by country living. And, and and while I say that in the context of the East San Gabriel Valley, just think about other suburban developments, particularly master plan, large scale developments across the state, even in the Central Valley and Northern California that have similar vibes, right? Similar types of, 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 of marketing, you know, the willows or, you know, you know, they, these types of words that, that try to evoke an old American West. And even if you move outside of California, you see that type of of planning and developing and marketing of suburban communities in that particular region. So I see similar developments outside suburb in suburban Houston, suburban Dallas, suburban Phoenix, right? Other parts of the American West that really do lean in on this idea of you're moving to the frontier, you're moving to to the, the, the great unknown, but you're still 10, 20 miles from downtown Phoenix, downtown Dallas, downtown Las Vegas, downtown LA. And so to me, I think in many ways, this story is applicable to other parts of the, of the American West. And in the East San Gabriel Valley, you really saw that, you know, on steroids, right? In the 1980s, really a lot of that imagery going back to that time. And again, going even before the 1980s to earlier decades. I think my favorite kind of cultural representation of that idea of the San Gabriel Valley is that West Covina song from My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yes, or the, yes. the, the, the great the kind of- show, yeah. The last line is only two hours from the beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that really sums it up. Did we see kind of this concept of country living in other parts of Los Angeles County? So I'm thinking like parts kind of in Orange County and kind oh, yeah. of those exterior parts. Is is there similarities or differences that you observed in those different regions of LA County? Definitely. So I, I in the book I talk a little about how Irvine became a model, a regional model of the suburban development and. Irvine, you know, for those who don't know it, it's central Orange County, and it was, you know, it is a master plan community, the Irvine company built the city of Irvine, and with the intention of also having the university there, UC Irvine, and parts of the Newport coast, right. And they came up with this idea that they're going to, again, kind of have a rural environment, and that they tried to maintain that image. Now, of course, you know, again, everyone has different perceptions of of what's in front of them. I would venture to say that I think a lot of us would say this is not rural if you go to Southern Orange County anymore. And even the coastlines are developed, right? The coastal communities. And so back in the, you know, earlier times, 50s, but I think it was 1960s, really, where a lot of that development was happening in Orange County, that early stages of suburban development, Orange County, you know, that was their intention, right? So you see similar types of marketing and planning. You know, the Irvine company was trying to sell this idea again, that they're also in an agricultural kind of enclave, but they really did, of course, also boost this factor of being by the coast. So that beach kind of, that beach version of country living, if you want to call it that, in the Northern part of LA County, of course, or into the San Fernando Valley, you had a lot of that as well. There's a great book by Laura Baraclaw, that talks about this. She's a geographer who wrote a book about, again, kind of this 
rural landscapes of the San Fernando Valley. So where a lot of ranchers live and horse owners. And you see similar forms of suburban development in, in recent decades on the last 10 to 20 years in the Inland Empire. So if you go to around Corona, Eastvale, Ranch Cucamonga, and, and even, you know, anecdotally as a side note, I was a couple of weeks ago, I was in Temecula visiting family. And Temecula is, is, is another example, a more contemporary example of this kind of rural meets suburban environment. And, and, and Temecula, I remember going even just 10 years ago, was not as busy and dense as it is today. And it now, you know, that's one of the interesting aspects about a lot of these communities is that they were selling country life and then it urbanized. And now a lot of residents are complaining that it's not country enough. <laughs> yeah, no, I but definitely brought them I, there, right? Brought them there was a country aspect. And now it's became so many people that it's no longer country. Sorry, you were yeah, saying something. I mean, one of my close friends is his mother retired recently and she moved to Temecula from the East Bay to kind of pursue that country living in wine. And you know, oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think there are places where that's more feasible in California and they might be coming fewer and far between. And we could talk about demographic shifts, but I do want to ask about push and pull factors. That's a great question. So I'd say in terms of push factors and a lot of this, of course, you know, and overlaps, but with push factors, depending on where they're coming from in Asia, it oftentimes was both economic and political. So let's start with, let's say economic reasons, right? So for some, let's say, South Korean immigrants, the economy wasn't as booming as it is today. It's like South Korea, especially, of course, around Seoul, is, you know, is, is thriving. But that that's a recent, right, success, if you will, economic success. And if you talk to earlier immigrants from South Korea, let's say in the 1980s, you know, the economy was, was still kind of rebounding. Um, you had, of course, the vestiges of the Korean War and, and Cold War uh, interventions in Korea. Um, you know, similarly, also, um, you know, the economy was was not as strong in Taiwan in the 1970s, for example. And so a lot of immigrants uh, who would become immigrants to the United States were, were planning an exit, right? At least the people I spoke with. And so, you know, the, they would say, well, there's greater opportunity in the United States, Filipino immigrants as well. In the context of the Philippines, and this is a nice bridge between economic and political reasons, in the Philippines, you had martial law from 1972 to 1986 under the Marcos dictatorship, right? He was a president that really became, you know, a dictator. And you had immigrants who, you know, I would speak to some of them and say, well, first of all, the economy was, was terrible. You had the Philippine government under the Marcos administration also encouraging Filipinos to leave and um, basically earn money and send it back, remit that those monies back to the to the Philippines. Um, and also just, you know, in the context of the Philippines, too. So bad economy or struggling economy or lack of opportunity, um, political instability and also um, the colonial ties. The United States, you know, right, was a colonial power over the Philippines for almost 50 years. And so for a lot of that generation, they grew up in an era in which they were told the real dream in life is to be in America, right? And so all of these factors, and I could even go to more specifics, but just as these few examples, you know, these were push and pull factors, right? And the pull factor, again, now in this case of Asian immigrants and refugees was, you know, the, the idea that they could achieve the American dream, right? That it, only in America, you can own property and land, 
Only in America, you could, you know, be someone that arrives to the United States with $5 in their pocket and suddenly you're making $5,000, right? Um, and, and, and that lure, that really, you know, sweet image in their mind was what brought them to the United States. And a lot of them, you know, that was a source of motivation, right? I think, you know, for whatever you feel, however you feel about this idea and myth of the American dream, that was a source of motivation for a lot of immigrants and refugees to build their lives upon, right? And so, you know, in the book, I talk a little bit about this, of how in many ways, that's why a lot of Asian immigrants who move there and the families that they raise really work so hard to not only achieve this so-called American dream, but defend it. Even and, 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 the, and that defense came through in local politics, right? Asian immigrants who are often seen, and Asian Americans, broadly speaking, even US ones, who are often seen as people who are not as civically engaged, they're not as voting, they're not voting as much, they're not on the front lines of politics and civic life. They were actually out there, but oftentimes it had to do with with interests that directly impacted their lives and livelihood. So if that meant that, let's say there was a development that was being proposed that they felt could actually undermine property values or maybe bring a, a negative element to the community, that's when they were activated, right? And, and in their eyes, it was not out of classism or defense of, you know, I'm a homeowner or I'm a resident of this town or that town. In their eyes, they're saying, I have everything to lose, right? And, and I worked hard for this and I'm going to fight my way anyway to defend it. And, and that's where, you know, this, there's nuance around kind of this suburban nimbyism from an immigrant perspective. You know, I think in their eyes, they're like, I, I'm not a native born America. I'm not white, especially. And, and I, it, it was hard enough for me to build this. And so I can't rebound as easily as someone that's you know, a white person in these communities. And so a lot of them came from the perspective of, you know, whatever, I, what, all the things that I did and do is because it was coming from a place of, as, as an immigrant who came from dis, with disadvantages already on them, right? So it's a, it's a complicated story that, that I, I try to flesh out in the book. And that's an ex one example of like how that ties with push and pull factors and how they, how they you know, how they live their lives once they're here. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like it's a natural consequence. Whenever you <laughs> leave the loan title company, you immediately become a NIMBY, and you have to you have to fight that internally to to avoid preventing progress in your communities. And mm -hmm. like, I think that's you know, once we all become stakeholders, and so it's understandable. Mm -hmm. But also, you mentioned in the book that there were some integration challenges for Asian uh, immigrants moving into this particular area. What were what were some of those specific challenges you can point to? Yeah. So the challenge among the challenges, you know, just as a couple of examples, often had to do with what, you know, some folks call the built environment. In other words, built spaces, right? So churches, temples, supermarkets, strip malls, even schools became sites of politicization. And Asian immigrants, a lot of Asian immigrants who settled in this part of the San Gabriel Valley, you know, in the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, they wanted to uphold the idea of suburbia, American suburbia, in other words, not trying to modify it too much physically, but also culturally. They, there was this, you know, they're under the, the specter and pressures of assimilation, right? And you must assimilate as an immigrant to the United States. And they wanted to abide by that, a lot of them, right? Not all of them, but a lot of them. But also they still wanted to integrate 
their cultural traditions and practices in their day-to-day -day lives, right? That includes food and, 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 and ingredients that they wanted to have access to. That includes being able to speak their native tongue. So they wanna be able to speak Mandarin or Cantonese or Tagalog and, and Korean and other languages regularly and have their children learn that, right? And so the sites of integration and contestation were often around public spaces or pseudo-public spaces, like quasi-public spaces. So for example, in the book, I talk about the controversy of 99 Ranch Market, which for a lot of people in California, and I think even Nevada might know that chain. It's a Taiwanese-Chinese supermarket that really exploded in terms of the number of, of locations across the state in the 1980s and especially the 1990s. And in parts of the San Gabriel Valley that I, that I write about in the book, some residents were like, great, let's have one. I want access to, to uh, you know, uh, tofu and, and easy access to fresh seafood, live seafood, right? And again, you know, for a lot of us now in, in 2023, you know, no, no matter where you live in the country now, some of these ingredients are actually quite easy to find even at your local supermarket. But back in the 1980s, it's hard to find Asian ingre ingredients, right? Yeah. And I want to say that that is the best named chain because it could it could be it could be any number of ethnic cuisine <laughs> you know it, if you told me that was kind of a mexican forward supermarket i would believe you because that name is kind of has a genericness to it that's kind mm -hmm. of very well constructed yeah 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 that 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 name that, that name 99 ranch actually is, is also a source of debate on the internet it's some people in northern california this is a side side note by the way in northern california what i've heard is that a lot of people call it ranch 99 but in southern california more people grew up with it calling it 99 ranch and it's actually <laughs> kind of regional i say yeah. 99 ranch because i that's what i call it and i know yeah, it yeah, yeah. but anyway going back to that story you know, so in certain communities, sub, particularly more upper middle class or affluent suburbs, residents, and I'm not just talking about white residents, I'm talking about residents across racial lines, including Asian immigrants, sometimes fought to not have a 99 ranch because they felt it was day class A, it was going to bring more traffic. A lot of these associations with race and space that people equate with, let's say, Chinatowns that are often in a, in a negative light, seen in a negative light. But at the same time, you had residents who wanted to have access to those spaces. And, and so 99 Ranch became a site of contestation and fighting and debate in these communities because residents, especially Asian immigrants and their families were conflicted. What you often found though, was that a lot of these retail stores that catered to Asian immigrants were often in, in more working class or lower middle-class communities where there was a little bit less concern about keeping up appearances and and a lot of and and less classist motivations in maintaining a particular image about the quote unquote all American suburb, and so that's one example. Another example of of contestation and, and trying to integrate culture was through religion. So in the book, I talk about a couple of cases that really that drew a lot of attention regionally, and and in Southern California, where was the construction, of, particularly of this Buddhist temple called Shilai, which was it's just in Hacienda Heights. It's still there today. And you can't miss it. If you're driving in, in Southern California, especially on the 60 freeway, you could see it perched above on the hills. And why that became a you know site of contestation was you had, again, a lot of times Chinese immigrants who were Buddhists who wanted to practice Buddhism in their community, but there wasn't a, an established temple. A lot of the temples that were there were often kind of, you know, thrown, you know, people were holding services in people's homes or garages. And they were like, we want a proper temple. And, and so, and in some cases, other religions as well. But 
in the in an effort to have access to these cultural spaces and integrate them, you also had residents, including some Asians too, who were who were a bit resistant on having that because they were like, "Well, you did move to America for a reason, right?" And that's the 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 motivation. The 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 logic behind that is again a very kind of quote unquote mainstream idea of that you drop a lot of these cultural practices. And some immigrants wanted to do that, but they were like, "Well, I can't drop everything, right?" You want, I can speak English, great, but I'm also still a Buddhist at the end of the day. I want to practice that, right? Or I'm I'm a Vietnamese refugee or I'm a Filipino immigrant at the end of the day. I want to be able to find ingredients and speak the language that, you know, and, and practice the religions that I, I'm familiar with and that are important to me. And so the integrating oftentimes of culture into the suburban landscape, it was a tricky situation oftentimes because on the one hand, you had residents, including white residents who said, we do want to integrate them and, and include them in our communities, but they often felt that there was a line that was not to be crossed. And, and for some residents, uh, some white critics, they felt that Asian immigrants were either standing on that line or crossing it. And, and that's where things got a little bit messy. And, and that's where time there were times where the conflict became more and more, not just about race, but also about upholding a particular idea of American suburbia. Were there disputes over architecture and home design? I mean, if you travel through parts of the SGV, you'll see these amazing McMansions with these mm-hmm. like with these amazing ornate fences around them. Mm-hmm. Were, were, was the construction of those controversial in some of these periods? Totally. If you want to learn more about that too, those who are listening, there's a great book called Trespassers by Willow Longamom. And she wrote about Fremont, California in Northern California here, where McMansions were a source of, of conflict in the community. And a lot of them were, were East Asian and South Asian families that were bu- building these homes, right? But going back to this part of, of Southern California, yeah. So some t- communities actually had codes already in their community codes that outlawed that type of development. But some communities, like, for example, the suburb of Walnut, which I talk about in the book, not to be confused with Walnut Creek, for those of you who know Northern California, the community of Walnut, it is, you know, named after Walnut because there were Walnut groves there once. The There were there was a patch of land, for example, just one example of Walnut that um, was zoned for agricultural use. But the way the wording was written in the city codes was a little bit open to interpretation, right, in terms of how you build a a home on that property. And so what you found was in, let's say, the 1990s, patches of land that were oftentimes owned by white families with Midwestern and Southern ties who wanted to have a farm-like environment in the middle of the suburbs, once they sold those properties and then, let's say, a Chinese family moved in and they wanted to build a much larger home, um, and oftentimes, you know, it it was multi-generational housing, um, then the resistance came from the neighbors like, hold on a minute, who approved of this McMansion, what would be known as a McMansion? And so then you start to have then civic leaders step in and say, okay, we need to make sure that we don't have any more of this happening, right? I, I, I write about this also in an article, if folks who want to read like a, a, a slice of this book in an article format in the Journal of Urban History called Design Assimilation uh, in Suburbia. And I co-authored that with another historian based in Los Angeles, Becky Nicolades. And we discussed this in the context of McMansions and housing styles in Arcadia and San Marino, uh, California, in the West San Gabriel Valley and in the East San Gabriel Valley, Walnut and Diamond Bar. And and we just not just talk about McMansions, but also just different types of housing style. So going back to your initial question about 
Asian design and aesthetics and, and, and so forth, cultural displays, you know, there were, there were sites of conflict around, you know, how non-Western you can build your home or how non-Western you could build a shopping center. And there were, again, this became an interesting moment of, in some ways, for residents to think through, you know, what does suburban diversity look like? Not just in its people, but in terms of the built landscape. And so that that to me was where you did have people react in, in different ways. And McMansions were often tied to Asian immigrants and families and, and certain types of design like Buddhist temples, again, were, were up for question and debate. So, you know, there were often, you know, just to, to cut to the chase here, right, there, there was a lot of negotiating and deals that had to be made. And, and eventually, you know, people, there, there, people reached accord, but it took years oftentimes to get there and a lot of hurt feelings along the way. Yeah. I think one of the things that I took from your book is related to this kind of broader California discussion of nimbyism. And oftentimes the racial element is veiled and it's veiled using different ways, you know, traffic or, you know, <laughs> there's, there's like Density. terms. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, how how do you think your book informs the NIMBY discussion more broadly in California? I think, you know, off the top of my head, honestly, I feel like in terms of that discussion of NIMBYism, I think my book goes to show to say that it's not just white middle class people who are NIMBYs, right? I think that's often the perception in the way that it's similar to how people view gentrification. It It's much more nuanced, right? And in this book, I don't think they would consider themselves that. I don't think anyone wants to claim that they're a NIMBY, but there are a lot of examples here of non-white people engaging in NIMBY politics. And, and that really then is not so much about race, but also we have to, again, look at that intersection with class. And also, really, as a cultural historian, we have to step back and actually, beyond race and class, actually just think about the power of myth. Right, the power of how people want, of how people imagine their landscapes and their communities and their neighborhoods, and and that informs a lot of NIMBY politics and reactions is because they see their neighborhood, they see their community, they see their city, their town, their suburb, in a particular way, and if and if whatever project or development or plan that is in front of them does not suit that image, and oftentimes it doesn't, in their eyes, they're going to fight it, right, and and. In a post-civil rights era America, you know, people who have discriminatory views are not going to be as overt and explicit about it, right? They're going to use, as you mentioned a moment ago, kind of other phrasing and talking points to get their point across, right? They're not going to say, well, we don't want this temple here or this shopping center here catering to, you know, Latinx immigrants or Asian immigrants, we're going to say, oh, we just don't want more density, or it's going to bring invite more traffic or people who quote unquote, don't live in the community, right? So, so that's what you find is, you know, again, first of all, this is not a new trend, but also in this case, in my book, that's where I see, you know, kind of where NIMBYism is much more complicated and the quote unquote typical profile of a NIMBY is not what we think of it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to make kind of a pivot here to talk about city government and HOAs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just reading this book whose name is escaping me. It's something like 
Privatopia or something like that about homeowner associations and how they've grown in the United States. But also, I mean, in some ways, they've grown because city governments are are cash strapped and resource right. depleted and so it's kind of a net natural consequence but let's let's take a step back and talk about diamond bar okay. can you discuss some of the motives and purpose behind the movement to incorporate as a city in diamond bar you know there's probably expressed motives and then you know non-expressed implicit motives so can you distinguish between those Yes. So really, as a quick point to what you just said a moment ago, a lot of HOAs, as you mentioned, and you're, as you're reading that book too, did develop because a lot of city and town councils and governments could not, or, you know, like you said, financially strapped. But also we have to think about it in the context of post-Watergate America, where there's a lot of suspicion around government and politicians and governance. And so a lot of residents, and this is relating to your question about Diamond Bar now, right? A lot of residents in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, and certainly even today, are really definitely today questioning authority, right? And in this kind of cultural milieu, especially among conservative circles, they're like, I don't trust my mayor, you know, I don't, I can't trust my, my planning commissions to make the decisions and the right calls. So we as homeowners, as stakeholders, and again, I say homeowners, right? Because they own property. It's very different from one's relationship as a renter in a community. Um, they, they felt that they had to take matters in their own hands in for their own, um, you know, um, interests as owners, right? As property owners. So HOAs became another layer of government because under the guise that actually we know what's best for our community, right? Especially if it's a larger community where there are thousands and thousands of constituents, they felt like, well, wh what does the councilman and councilwoman from five miles away know about my community? So now tying this to Diamond Bar, Diamond Bar incorporated, it took several times to incorporate because there were a lot of concerns. So in the book, I, I as folks will read, if you've already read it, as well know this story they it took several years because there were a lot of conflicting views about what incorporation does so in other words to become a city for those who don't are not as familiar with that term and diamond bar was an unincorporated part of los angeles county and a lot of residents wanted to keep it that way because they felt that they lived in the true countryside in other words no regulation in a very libertarian context right we don't want rules we don't want local government you know, mind, we want them to mind their own business. And they're, they're like, you know, leave us alone, right? That's kind of the, the motivation why people didn't want to incorporate. But then you had more residents, especially those who were settling in the 1970s and 1980s in Diamond Bar, who did want more regulation because they felt that with less regulatory eyes on their community, the, the community was going to keep developing and growing without control, right? And so they felt that if you incorporate to become a city, you're going to have more local autonomy and control from your fellow neighbors, right? That you're electing into office. The logic was, if we keep it as the status quo, in other words, unincorporated diamond bar, we have county supervisors who are governing our community who don't even live anywhere near the community, and they're making big decisions about development and growth. What does the supervisor who lives 20 miles away who still covers this region know about this development 
and how it's going to impact us as, 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 as homeowners and as, as business owners. And so a lot of the motivation to incorporate came out of this fear that, and concern that they can't make their own decisions and, and as they said, control their own destiny. So again, this is very much in the frontier ethos and logic of we, right? We, we are the settlers and it's our claim, right? It's our stake. You know, this is what's at stake as, as our, as, as residents. And so in the 1980s, there were efforts to incorporate and they eventually did in 1989. And I tell that story with obviously a lot more detail in the book, but just to kind of to, to get to the end of this, just to put a to bookend on the story is that incorporation, you know, became another side of politicization. And it, and it was not so much about just race, but really more in this case about this idea of control, controlling one's destiny curbing development and, and trying to have a particular type of development in their community that they felt that they had their hands on. And if you didn't incorporate and you led it to county forces and, and people who don't live in the community, these quote unquote out of touch liberals in the city, as sometimes as they said, who are making these calls in downtown Los Angeles, and this is again phrasing that they used, that they're actually going to ruin the rural preserve in which they're trying to protect technically as suburbanites, right? And that's what makes this story so fascinating because it's so layered. It's not always about race or class. It's also about how people want to see their community and how that is, how they carry out those goals and objectives as residents. Yeah, let's let's pivot to talking about HOAs for a second. You say a couple things about HOAs in the book that on the surface seem paradoxical, but I think they make sense if we look at them in kind of a nuanced way. So one of the things you say is that HOAs gave property classes more civic influence. Mm -hmm. And then we also are seeing uh, HOAs pulling people away from traditional civic participation. So how do those two things make sense? Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I think I, I make this disclaimer, by the way, in the introduction that there's a lot of things in the book that will not make sense to us. And I, and I say that not in the confusing sense that you're going to read this book and be confused in the sense that there are a lot of decisions that residents made that didn't always align or, or again, make sense. And I think that's partly because there was so much change and growth happening in these regions that people were trying to just grab at any, try to make any decisions or calls that they felt were right at that moment, even if that maybe years later, they regretted that, right? And so, for example, as you said, rightfully so, HOAs became another source of government, government and governance, and they were being drawn to that because they couldn't trust the local government. But then oftentimes these HOA members, especially its leaders, then use that force to say, hey, I've got the backing of dozens of homeowners behind me. And they would use that pressure on city councils or planning commissions and even developers who had plans. You know, for example, in Walnut, there was this development I talk about in the book of building a, hundreds of new homes on the hills. And why that matters is because one, it's more density and growth and traffic, but two, people were livid about people developing the hills. And, you know, for a lot of Californians, the hills mean a lot to us, right? We were, that's one of the wonderful, you know, elements of living in California is that we have that kind of diversity of elevation. And so for a lot of residents are saying, how dare you, right? Even think about building on these hills because, you know, now you're going to mar the, the, the image and, and landscape that brought us here to begin with, which is that we're living amongst the hills, we're living in the countryside, right? And so anyway, going back to this example, some of these local groups, HOA leaders and development, excuse me, kind of community organizations use that pressure of saying, hey, I've got the backing of homeowners. Don't you dare build this community. Or, and if you do, right, 
you got to scale it down by 50% or more, right? And so, and in some ways that power of the HOA sometimes spoke more and was more impactful than the mayor, <laughs> right? Or or the, the, the head of the planning commission that was saying, this is what residents are telling me, it's the homeowners associations that actually have a lot of that clout. And I think, again, it goes back to this point of how the, the decentralization of government, but also the, the power of, of homeowners in suburban politics across America at this time was growing because there was a lot of weight behind someone that could say, I own property in this town. And that's also because we value you know, generally speaking in this country, the input of people who own more than people who don't own, right? And so that becomes, again, another sort, a really interesting site. I'm glad you pulled that out as an as, as a interesting paradox, because yeah, it, it, it is a situation in which, you know, s- suburban government and governance is changing at that time. Yeah. And, and and I, I kind of thought that HOAs kind of reminded me of like powerful lobbyist groups, but on the local scale. I mean, that's kind of really what they seem the most comparable to in terms of an entity and how they operate. But let's let's move towards positivity. So we're going (laughs) to talk about positive futures for the SGV. What could Yimbyism look like in the SGV? Ooh, that's a good question. I think you know, I'll I'll say this, and 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 you know. The disclaimer is, you know, I'm based now in Northern California, so I'm my eyes are not as close to the ground as they once were, but I do have friends and family obviously still live there. And my perception, I do follow what's going on there still, right? My perception is that a lot of residents in this SGV, West and East Sides, are more open to forms of development that were once frowned upon even 10, 20 years ago. Right. In other words, open to a little bit more density, open to more types of development that are are friendly to more working class or lower middle class people or you know middle income people. Right. Lower middle income people. I think that's a, just a generational shift, and uh, part of it is also just I think an ideological political shift over the years as well. Right. You know the area. You know to be fair, the East San Gabriel Valley in particular. You know, while it was a very conservative area politically for decades, now it's a little bit more kind of a mixed bag of liberal and conservative, but it was a very conservative bastion for many years. And I talk about that in the book. Regardless, at the time, let's say in the 1980s, 90s, whether you were a Democrat or Republican, you were against development oftentimes. <laughs> so that was a bipartisan consensus there, right? And, and nowadays, I would say that in, in San Gabriel Valley, going back to this point of development and growth and yimbyism and all those things, I think that especially the more younger generations or people who have less deep ties to the area are more open to, again, higher density or more density and, and more open to, to, to different class sensitivities and issues and challenges, right? I will say, though, that, again, I have read many instances of resistance as well. You know, Arcadia, for example, there was a lot of concern about the growth of unhoused populations, uh, in, in, I believe, Hacienda Heights. I can't remember where exactly I was talking about a friend of, a friend about this, that there was also concerns, again, of not just unhoused populations, but also more working class developments that were uh, down the pipeline uh, in parts of the East San Gabriel Valley. So you're still, of course, going to get resistance. Um, but I think that it's not, it does not at least um, feel as organized and powerful as it once was. 
And, you know, for better or worse, right, however you want, whatever you see, however your position is on that, that seems to be the case where there's a, a slight shift in attitude around development. I think part of it, too, is, you know, and I'm now just speaking on my behalf, I can't speak for anyone, for everyone, but the San Gabriel Valley, East and West, for the most part, is built out. There's no more places or very few places anymore that can claim to be rural preserves that are actually technically zoned as places that could be developed. And even when you do develop these communities now, what's left that can be developed, I, I'd venture to say that a lot of people who move there are not moving there like they did in the 80s to, to get a piece of the old American West. They're just trying to get housing in LA <laughs> and especially different, since different pull factors, right? Yeah, exactly. Especially now that the, the rail lines extend more and more East into the community. You know, I have rel- you know family in the more Eastern parts of the San Gabriel Valley extending into San Dimas and other parts now, right into the Claremont area it, that the pull, the pull factors now, as you just said, are very different now. I think there was a particular image of suburbia that people were chasing in the 1970s and 80s. And today, it's that's not the case. And, and those people who do want that old American West, they're not going to California for that anymore. They're going to Idaho, they're going to Colorado, they've been going to Idaho and Colorado, you know, and other parts of the American West to chase that dream, and, and trying to find big sky country elsewhere, right. So I, I think that that is, you know, where, where I see the San Gabriel Valley now. And there's still a lot of challenges within the valley that have persisted over time that I even talk about in the book that whether it's 1985 or 2023, at the end of the day, people are going to be concerned about how their neighborhoods are changing. And, and even if it's not changing, how people engage with this notion that it is changing, even if it's sometimes imagined. Okay. Before we close up with books and what you're working on next, I'm going to ask you a bunch of fun questions because- okay. I lived here and, you know, so I, I have lots of fun questions. Do you think Pasadena is kind of an island amongst the SGV, both in terms of demographics and its history? It seems like a, it's included, I think, kind of mm-hmm. in ge- geographically, but it, in some ways it seems kind of an island among itself. That's a really good point and question. In some ways it is, right? I think Pasadena has its own rich history. And I think because Pasadena has, she has a much more national profile, part of it because of the Rose Parade frankly, and, and the early concentrations of money that were there. Yeah, I, I feel like it It has its, obviously its history is de- deeply rooted in the San Gabriel Valley, but it also has, I think, for whatever reason, whether it's just the the historiography and how people see regionally Pasadena, it, it does sometimes feel like people talk about it as a separate entity, even though that is in some ways the heart, uh, the, 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 the quote unquote city of the San Gabriel Valley, that would be Pasadena, right? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and good point. I, I'd say that, you know, to a related point, I would argue that sometimes that Pomona on the east side is kind of treated separately sometimes. And and even West Covina, these are the bigger cities of the valley, right? West Covina, I think a lot of people forget, even I forget sometimes, is actually a big city, you know, big a big community. And, and so between Pasadena, West Covina, and Pomona, I see them as sometimes kind of standing alone, right? For example, Pomona has their own city library. They're not part of the county system, right? And I know that's like a very trivial point, but that's, you know, again, one example of of kind of how Pomona stands alone in the way that like Pasadena can kind of be seen as standing alone as its own kind of 
entity as part of the valley. But of course, part of the reason why we have the San Gabriel Valley and the surrounding communities is because of these bigger towns that were, you know, that were touching rail or had other ties to the, to the regional and global economy, like Pasadena, like West Covina, like Pomona. How important was Jonathan Gold eating food in Monterey Park and different places in the San Gabriel Valley to perception of the area? I think it, I think Jonathan Gold's contributions to highlighting the food scene in San Gabriel Valley actually was important in terms of actually putting a, a spotlight on a community that was either mysterious to a lot of people or flyover territory quite frankly. And, and I think as an eater, right, as someone who loves to eat, but also someone from the, from the region, I actually, I actually am really grateful for a lot of the, the, the cultural work in some ways that Jonathan Gold was doing. He was not just highlighting restaurants. He was also, you know, saying that, Hey, there is some great food that didn't cost a hundred dollars. And that was not French or Italian or Cal Italian. There's wonderful food from all across the Chinese diaspora. There's great food from East and Southeast Asia that's in the San Gabriel Valley, along with, you know, Latino communities like Mexican and, and Salvadorian foods and, and, and communities that live in the area as well. And so I think that his work was really important. I think, you know, since we're on the topic of food, I think other critics like like Bill Addison is, is still continuing that that work of making sure that when we talk about L.A., that we're talking about all parts of greater LA and, and all the communities within. It's not just, you know, the West Side, Santa Monica, you know, and, and downtown Los Angeles and 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 what have you, Century City. It's also El Monte. It's also Rosemead, right? These communities of the San Gabriel Valley. It's also West Covina and Roland Heights. And so I think that, and the people who live there, and I think that's really, you know, really important in terms of recognizing that, you know, when we talk about LA, it's not just city limits. LA in particular is the epitome of a very decentralized city. And as such, a lot of the life and, and the pulse of LA really takes place on the fringe. Hmm. So do you have any suggestions or strategies for people that are wanting to experiment with food in the SGV? How do you find good food there? Talk to the people. <laughs> That's how I get my recommendations. I mean, I think before, you know, I think when Yelp was more popular, people would go on Yelp and I'd find things through there, quite frankly. But honestly, if you go to any strip mall in the San Gabriel Valley, especially the the the, the kind of Asian enclaves, historic Asian enclaves, I venture to say you can go to any one of those restaurants and you're going to find a good meal. And, and a meal that maybe I'm talking now is in Northern California, but relatively priced well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Last one on the food yeah. uh, before we close up. I should people go to Asian grocery stores more often? Well, you're going to find, first of all, a lot of ingredients that you can find at Albertsons and Safeway and Vons and Ralph's and, and other supermarkets, even Sprouts, right? And I think for me, as someone that loves to cook and bake a lot, different types of cuisine, right? Not just Asian food. You're going to find a lot of things there that you've either never come across or maybe you've had before, and maybe we're maybe hesitant to use because you didn't know how to use it. And it, I feel like it opens your senses and opens up possibilities. And that's why Asian markets um, are great to go to. And oftentimes, you know, it's not even just about the food. It's a cultural experience, right? Because in, in many ways, you're seeing a lot of the cross, you know, crossroads of, of the neighborhood in that store, right? It's it's a pole, right? Whether it's a Chinese market or a Filipino market or Korean market, 
you're, you're going to have a lot of people there. I, I will say, for example, I was just in Southern California visiting my family who, again, still lives in the East San Gabriel Valley. I went to a Filipino supermarket and, and I, what was wonderful was that, of course, you're going to find Filipino ingredients and, and other Southeast Asian ingredients, but there was a whole section and I was so excited about this. I took a photo and put it on my Instagram, a whole section of just spices that usually cater to what would be otherwise considered Latin American cuisine, a whole wall. And, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. I know there's a lot of overlap between, let's say, Spanish food and Filipino food, but also the communities it serves, there's a lot of Latinos in the neighborhood, and they were going to that supermarket as well. It wasn't just Filipinos that were shopping there. I, I saw Latino families. I saw uh, a couple of white customers going in and buying, you know, fresh fish, you know. And, and to me, I feel like these shopping, you know, centers and grocery stores are are also just you know, the hubs of, of community life. And in the suburbs of San Gabriel Valley, it's a great representation of what a suburb looks like now in many parts of California. Yeah, I love stocking my pantry. Drink less kombucha, eat more pickled radishes. And, you know, right. when, you nice go to a, <laughs> when, you, when you go to a grocery store and the only options are white and brown rice, you know you're in the wrong grocery store because there's every version that you'll find in some of these international markets. And it's so wonderful because okay. you can explore all this kind of wide universe that you, you don't really get with this kind of myopic, like just, you know, this or this at a traditional grocery store. Anyway, we could talk about food forever, but let's close up. Well, two questions to close. What are two or three books that you'd recommend? And then uh, last question is, what are you working on next? Great. That's a tough question for me because I I feel like my favorite books or most useful books are is always changing. Mm. I will say for this particular book, my book, Resisting Change in Suburbia, there's a great book that is, I believe, 1992, 91 or 92 that came out. And I know it may seem like, well, that's a little dated, but the concepts are not, especially for people who are interested in Southern California history or California history in general, honestly. It's called Variations on a Theme Park. It's an edited volume. I believe Michael Sorkin is the name of the, the, the editor of the series. I can even look that up real quick. But basically, the book really dives into you know what we, what we mean by how we envision building our communities. And so it talks about the Disneyfication of suburbia. It talks about the end of public space, oftentimes in suburbia, but also in cities too. In other words, how a lot of the spaces that all of us engage with and, and walk through and socialize in and consume in are oftentimes private spaces that are designed and, and that appear to be pri uh, public spaces. And so this was written at a time where people were starting to really think about geography in interesting and unique ways. And oftentimes through a type of critique of space that was tied to, you know, questions about economy and social and cultural inclusion, right? And so that's a great book to read that I felt it was very helpful as someone that is not just a California historian, but also an urban and suburban historian as well. I'd say a lot of the work from, you know, historians of suburbia also informed my 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 training, if you really want to go back old school here for folks who want to talk about suburban history and the historiography of suburba, suburban life in America, pick up Kenneth Jackson's book, Crabgrass Frontier, about Long Island. He was one of the trailblazers of suburban history and suburban studies. Becky Nicolades, who wrote a book called My Blue Heaven on, on, on L.A., and, and the politics of suburbia, Kevin Cruz, Lisa McGurr, but also again, back to California, you know, you have Kevin Starr, who had a oftentimes more rosier image of California, but still helpful. 
Mike Davis, a more noir perception of California history as 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 it's been described in past. Ed Soja, geographer. So I I'm I know I'm naming a lot of names, but actually a lot of their books are are very useful in terms of learning more about California, especially Southern California, that has its own kind of really unique and varied and colorful past, right? And I think that's these are these are great recommendations. I'll say there's a another last book, a few books and on authors about Asian American spaces and geographies. As I mentioned, Willow Lung and Mom. Uh, Wei Lee and Min Joe, Wendy Chang, these are folks who have talked a lot about Asian American suburban spaces in particular, especially San Gabriel Valley. And if you want to learn more about the San Gabriel Valley and its global and international transnational connections, those are great books to also read and, and to think through, you know, what we mean by like a, this more globalized suburb like places like the East San Gabriel Valley. Okay. And what are you working on next? So what I'm working on next, and I'm very early in the research process. So I think a lot of history nerds can appreciate that, that there's a lot of thinking in the days and months and years ahead. Um, I'm writing, I'm hoping to write a, a book about uh, a history of the Asian American right and conservative mo movements. Um, in the field of U.S. history and ethnic studies, there's not, a, there's not been as deep a conversation about Republican, conservative, libertarian circles within the Asian American electorate or just Asian American communities. And my intervention, I hope, is to help historicize that faction of the Asian American community and not necessarily an opinion piece, you know, slanting in either direction as, you know, the positives or negatives. I want to tell the story of how Asian Americans have been engaged with conservative politics, not just in recent years or recent decades, but honestly going back to the post-war period. And to me, there's a whole historical arc there and, and story that needs to be told through the lens of historian, right? There's political scientists, for example, who've written about Asian American conservatives and, 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 and Republican activists. But there's more from the sides of, of historian to say, well, what was happening, let's say, in the Cold War that's informing Asian American voters? What's happening in terms of the economy or, or cultural, these kind of quote unquote culture wars, not just in the 2020s, but even well before that, that's also informing Asian American voters and how they see the world. And, and, and I'm hoping to do that research. And so right now I'm doing oral histories again. I'm early in the stage of that. I'm gonna be doing some archival work about that. And, and I touch actually on this theme of Asian American conservatism in my book, my first book, Resisting Change in Suburbia, where I talk about one of the first Asian American members of Congress, Jay Kim, who was a Korean American who was from the East San Gabriel Valley and, and how he, you know, climbed the ranks of Republican leadership. He was, you know, a buddy of Newt Gingrich and the Republican Revolution in 94. And, and, you know, there are these figures, even more contemporary examples like Nikki Haley, right, Bobby Jindal and, and Elaine Chao, who are prominent voices of the right, who are Asian American. So, so I, I want to tell the story and, and hopefully give a, a provide a historical arc and, and narrative here to help us understand, you know, why certain Asian Americans um, vote on the right. And, and that it's not always also about race and class. There are oftentimes other ideological motivations that's informing how they vote and how they see the world. And it's that type of civic engagement that we need to recognize and also contrast that with historiographies of the Asian American left, which dominate the political space of kind of that historiography.
Again, the book is Resisting Change in Suburbia. I encourage you all to pick it up. Whether or not you have any direct connections like we do to the San Gabriel Valley, there's broad implications for most of us because the truth is most of us live in some kind of suburb and have to deal with a lot of the same issues, conflicts, challenges that are covered in the book. This just gives you a very specific, very interesting case study into a particular region that's important in part of LA County. So thanks again for having this conversation with me. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks for reading the book. And I hope everyone enjoys it as well and takes a lot away from it. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.